Michael Joyce is a novelist, critic, poet, and the author of several groundbreaking works of electronic literature, including Afternoon, a Story. This is Michael Joyce. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Michael Joyce. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Glad to be here. Uh, Michael, you are a, a pioneer of a certain kind of literature that I find to be uh, both fascinating, um, underappreciated, uh, but still what I think is going to be the future of literature, uh, if literature is to have like a, a serious future, um, which is electronic literature is what it has sometimes been called. <laughs> and I want to sort of talk over the course of the conversation um, about like what that is, uh, perhaps why it hasn't become as uh, widely uh, accepted um, as one might hope, um, and also sort of your history in this. Um, and I, I want maybe we can start with uh, your uh, your work, Afternoon: A Story, um, if. If you could, could you could you describe the form of this piece? Because it's quite different than your typical I novel. I know, it, it, and it. But I'm sort of smiling because from the first, that was probably the first question I was ever asked about afternoon. Um, yeah. People, people, because the web's so ubiquitous. Because uh, it, it's it's um, that HTML um, is now a transparent kind of acronym. Nobody knows that the HT is hypertext. The earliest ages, uh, so to speak, of hypertext are uh, almost utterly unknown. But um, there there was a very rich set of uh, applications, designers, uh, writers, thinkers, um, teachers, uh, who early on in the kind of personal computing age, you know, when we're and, and these, of course, are relative terms early on. What are we talking about? Uh, 1980s and 90s um, were experimenting with, in various venues, um, systems uh, that were called hypertext systems. And that word comes from Ted Nelson, who coined it, uh, who's a fellow Californian for, um, for you, um, and, and who believed that the hypertext and hypertext was that it was more a language that was more than language. Uh, it had some other dimension. Now, you know, when you when you were giving your very generous introduction, I mean, um, I, I almost jumped in to say, you know, I don't know that it's the future of literature. It surely is the past of literature. Um, one of the things we know is that from the dawn of the 20th century, people who were writing in one form or another, first of all, we're interested in image. We're interested in kind of dynamic textuality of the sort that now we think of as kinetic text and what have you. We're interested in um, multiple layers of storytelling and and of poetry, especially. And and so when we all started fooling around with these things, these systems in the in the eighties, uh, essentially. Um, it wasn't that we had no history in it. It was that um, suddenly there were ways to represent and and embody these kinds of ideas and move them forward. Of course, you know you don't you're not really ever trying to write the same thing that people did in the past. So finally, to answer your question, what somebody looked at 
when they looked at a story space, the, the program that J. David Bolter and John Smith and I developed, uh, a story space screen on a Macintosh was very, very close to uh, what we now, uh, people who work in Twine know is, as a kind of hypertext organization uh, method, a group of boxes with arrows between them that kind of linked ideas or that moved to different layers of the text, different potentialities, different characters, different settings, uh, different time frames, and what have you. And very quickly, people sort of took to this, um, not just, you know, not just story space. There was Apple's famous hypercard. There were there were all sorts of systems, but very quickly people kind of uh, adapted themselves to this ability to write in a kind of multiple voice and in a multiplicity of times. So somebody sitting at a, a, a screen looking at afternoon would see uh, first an opening screen that looked somewhat like a conventional cover of a book uh, and that invited you to click on certain words and brought up a first screen that uh, in rather poetic prose finally at the end said, do you want to hear about it? And if you said yes, it moved in one direction. If you said no, it moved in another direction. It, uh, it I'm talking about it as if the text were alive, but that very often was how it felt. Uh, it, it decided for you that you were implicated in the story, even if you said no, it went in a different stream. I'll stop there lest I take up all your time in one answer, but that's pretty much it. Okay. So a, a few things in there that I wanted to touch on, um, where you said that this was certainly, uh, you said it's certainly the past. You're not so sure if it's the future. Um, I, I think that this is um, maybe hypertext, um, you know, novels seems to be a subset of electronic literature as a Absolutely. whole. And so it feels like electronic literature is something that has really been underexplored, uh, particularly when taking into account the fact that it seems like the the course of art history, um, because technology, every work of art has to be engineered to be brought into being. Pianos don't fall from the sky. Uh, when tubes of paint were invented, that's when artists started going outside and painting, uh, like the Impressionists, et cetera. Um, you know, photography influenced, you know, abstract art, because now why are we representing? And anyway, the um, when the technological means for creating art change, well, now we have all these new formal possibilities uh, that fall downstream of that. And it seems to me, and this I feel like is going to be a sort of a central part of this conversation. It seems to me like a lot of artists today, um, maybe particularly writers, aren't as well versed in the uh, technological breakthroughs of you know the past half century um, in, in a way that is kind of necessary to work in this form. Whereas to take advantage of the printing press, you didn't actually like need to know how it worked. Um, and you, you mentioned story space in here, which is this, um, program that, um, you and a few other people developed to create, um, something like afternoon, a story. I, I wanted to ask about this because electronic literature, the form is so expansive. Um, but when you're designing something like story space, you're, it feels like you're kind of making some assumptions about what the form could be. Um, 
In other words, something that takes place on the internet could be anything. It could have videos. It could, you know, have decision trees about where to take the novel. Um, was that a difficult part of the process in developing this software? It's a great question. It, it wasn't a difficult part of the process. It was a very complicated part of the process, but it was in many ways the most engaging part of it. Um, you know, I, by the way, before I answer any further, I want to look back and say, maybe I was taking a cheap rhetorical trick to disagree with you about the future. <laughs> because in a way, maybe we'll get to this, can argue that that future is already here. And I think that's sort of what where you're going with this question. Um, people have, you know, chat, GPT has taught writers that they in fact have before them a formidable tool that they hardly have to know how to use and that can kind of terrify you. But anyway, let me yeah. look back about the question about interfaces and what readers want and what have you. I remember very distinctly the sitting to write in my office at a community college in Michigan, what we thought was going to be the sort of demonstration text of a system that Bolter and I have been doing for years. And I had this enormous excitement about it. But I also knew that um, there were elements of the traditional book, you know, ways to page, whatever that meant, ways to figure closure, which have been questions that uh, have, have, in fact, involved uh, hypertext technology, web technology, all technology since. How do you know how far you, uh, you are in reading today's New York Times when it goes on endlessly? Uh, how do you know where you are once you set off in, in, in a day of browsing on your phone and what have you? Oh, your phone knows where you are, but you don't know where you are. I mean, those sorts of things, those questions were before me as I wrote. And it was very exciting. Um, Bolter and I had talked back and forth and back and forth. But how does it? Uh, one question constantly came up. Jay would raise and, and say, how does a text look from behind it? And I use, you know, he's not. Well, he is a technological guru, but I mean, he's not particularly a mystical man. He's a university professor and a class was a classical scholar who turned into one of the world's leading technologists. But what he meant was, what is the, and and this is something that looking at a Cezanne uh, painting or looking at a, a contemporary installation, a digital installation, we have the same kind of questions. What what is this surface, this text, this this moment, this interactive um, experience, where is it coming from? How does it implicate me? What does it know about me? Where am I going with it? What happens if I enter into it? And so those questions, yeah, absolutely were there. And, and we thought about them a lot. There were some innovations that now, you know, seem like kind of um, just old hat stuff, but things like we, we could take a link in StorySpace and park it in the interface, uh, literally, pick up the link, which was like a elastic string, an arrow, and rather than point it to something else, park it in an icon and say, later, I'm going to grab that. That's not unlike a painter's palette. That's not unlike what a movie, uh, what back in the days of the movie, Ola, what a, a film editor had. And that's surely not unlike what people are doing who are making game spaces now or creating uh, media, uh, interactive media, uh, environmental interactive media or textual interactive media or uh, AR or VR. Um, you're right. Those questions are always there. And and to a certain extent, I mean, some of the, the great thinkers in this area, people like Kate Hales and Catherine Hales, who taught for years at UCLA and moved to Duke. Uh, Kate would always make the point that, look, um, 
everybody, even somebody who says, no, I don't know anything about technology. I'm just a writer. I just write novels. Yeah. Uh, it is involved in a whole digital complex. You know, that's that keyboard in front of me is connected to a number of electrodes and you're sitting there. And if I send you a text and background, uh, we're both participating in a, in a bivalent kind of stream. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Well, and not only that, um, the, the printing press is obviously a form of technology. The alphabet is a form of technology. You know, Johanna, Johanna Drucker, another great Californian, has just just published a marvelous book about the various forms of the alphabet throughout time and what a technology they are, how they are medial objects, yeah. how they have a palpable sensuality to them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But we, you know, we like the world to be transparent, and and um, you know, people who are creating uh, a digital um, um, advertising or so-called content. Um, sort of um, aspire to it to a, a transparency and invisible invisibility um, that maybe causes us not to understand how much we're participating in in uh, creating the world around us yes and, and it feels like at a certain point um when we are sort of divorced from like the the origins of these technologies they stop feeling like technology like if someone was working in graphic design, no one would really consider that like a tech job, um, yeah. whereas writing software, people would. Was that something when you talked about writers saying that, you know, oh, I'm I'm just a writer. I'm not interested in the technology. Was that ever frustrating for you to hear? Was that a, a real point of resistance for people? No, it was constantly frustrating. And what was really frustrating was there, there for a while was an agreement on both sides of the, uh, on both sides. First of all, they created the both sides. There was a sort of a paradigm of, oh, you should put an artist along with the technologist. They should be side, side by side. And on the one hand, it's a wonderful paradigm. On the other hand, it seems to suggest that artists can never be technologists or right. that technologists aren't artists. And you have people like John Kelly and others who early on argued, wait a minute, code is art. Yeah. Art is a kind of code. There, you know, what we're thinking of is these distinctions aren't necessarily real. So the frustration, sure, people, uh, you know, early on, I, I won't mention the writer, but somebody, uh, a, a pretty well-known writer, wrote in the New York Times, "I will never read anything on the twitchy little screen of an iPhone." And the only reason I don't Ugh. mention don't mention her name is because yeah. how could you be so drastically wrong as a yeah. famous novelist? It would be like if Dickens said the, the steam engine isn't going to ever amount to anything. Um, you know, most of us live in the damn little twitchy screen. You know, yeah. and, and um, So, yeah, I mean, it's very much it, it was a, a source of, of frustration, but also a source of, of inspiration, because as people First of all, it, it you know it, I don't want to be at all Pollyannish about it. It didn't bring about a vast change, but as technologists and artists started to look at each other and realize that it was much the same prospect, I did it did increase the span the the horizon of of kind of um, uh, communal understanding of what what our enterprise is and what and what we're setting out to do. What's so weird about uh, this unnamed author, and I don't think they're the only person who feels no, this, no, no, no. Um, is to be an artist feels like to be an artist of your time. And in fairness, I do think that um, with the internet, I think that people's like styles of cognition are way different than those who existed 300, 400 years ago when the form of the novel was originally developed. And, I, you know, novel readership 
continues to decline, um, even as we have all kinds of professional schools and things like that for people who want to be novel writers. Uh, do you feel like literature in some ways, uh, or at least the, this like strain of thought within literature uh, is kind of like shooting itself in the foot and like uh, just going about things the wrong way by not accepting changes? Um, I, I used to say yes to that question. Now I say no, and I'll tell you why. I, I do think that um, there was a time where um, there was a sort of a gathering into um, into enclaves around the issues of, 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 of the borderland. I, there, there's a poet I know who used to... Um, used to tell me that she um, had one computer outside her door for her her emails and what have you. But when she went into her study, she had another one that didn't have email and what have you. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of separation, um, actually, as time has gone on, the reason my answer has shifted is uh, the people who move themselves to an enclave of privilege are now in a kind of, yeah, maybe you could call it shooting themselves in the foot, but in a kind of, I think, uh, empathic despair, where they understand that, um, first of all, you know, there's a way to argue, say, that uh, misinformation, malinformation, you know, all of the, you know, fake news sorts of things are a participation in a huge and, and awful story in some cases, but one that people sort of enter into uh, gladly and fill their days with in the way that perhaps novels and perhaps uh, theater and what have you did in the past and there has to be a certain kind of despair sitting on the edge, writing even very popular novels. I mean, the people who are who are still out there and selling a million copies or what have you um, have to mourn a little bit the loss of centrality. You know, when I was in my 20s running around New York, if a new novel came out from Saul Bellow or somebody, everybody knew about it. Well, now, you know, even, uh, you know, name your name your famous novelist at the moment. When a novel comes out, it's not something it turns up much unless you're looking at a particular blog or something. So there has to be a certain kind of despair there and, and a feeling of having shot oneself in the foot. But when you look at how much uh, text people generated, text now about their own lives daily and emails and in, and in, um, you know, especially in text, but in TikTok, you know, there's still text with TikTok pieces yeah. and whatever. Um, you have to, if you are a writer and you value language and you value the alphabet and you value uh, that technology, that as you point out, um, you know, the dawn of the novel um, changed the way we think about ourselves. We do think about ourselves as persons in a narrative that we can, you and I are doing now. We yeah. can spin out for each other. Um, for somebody who has set themselves off in an enclave, whether it's one of privilege or one of despair or one of, you know, uh, non-participation, um, you know, in, in technology, um, they have to look now and say, this is for all of its awful dangers, authoritarian threats, it, the, the horrors of, of internet culture sometimes at the moment is also desperately exciting. Yes. You know? I mean, it's, yeah, you, you have to want to create for, if, if you're any kind of artist, you have to say, where is my place in this? And, and, you know, what's interesting for me and what uh, many of us have argued for years, we argued maybe in a sort of utopian way uh, um, that the participatory media would change the way that people saw their lives. 
um, we may not have liked the way it turned out, but th there's some real truth to that. It has, you know, I mean, it, uh, uh, a funny thing, you know, my, my nine-year-old granddaughter is at her first sleepaway camp. And one of the things we can do is send her mail, uh, real physical mail, or we can email to her and they print them out and give them to her. Years ago, when I first came to Vassar College, uh, that was the way many, many faculty had their email done. And I used to kind of scoff at it. Now I actually think this is a pretty interesting thing for yeah. a nine-year-old who lives online and what have you, to understand that something I said became a thing. Was given yeah. to her. It is like the thing that she, she sent me two letters so far in the two weeks. I treasure them as a different kind of object. She's not at all confused about, you know, the many, many books she reads, the kinds of things she looks at online, the music videos that, you know, the Taylor Swift things that absolutely, uh, you know, take over her life. And, and so the net gain, uh, pun, I guess, half half ass pun, half intended, the net gain is that we're all of us much more sophisticated about medial objects and about our own place in them. Uh, right now, though, it seems like we're in desperate straits about it, you know, it, it, and, and we're for years, there's been this talk about, well, we're waiting, we're waiting for our, um, you know, our Don Quixote, we're waiting for our Cervantes, we're waiting for our Tolstoy, uh, notice they're all men, we're waiting for it. Whoever it is who's going to make sense of this for us, well, it's us, you know. I mean, Ted Nelson very early on, you know, said it's, you know, it's us. It's the Pogo thing. We've seen the future. It's us. Yeah, I. Um, it, it, and the great irony is that as novel readership has declined, what you mentioned about all this text, people today are probably reading more than they ever have in human history. Absolutely, without yeah. doubt. And 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 um, and reading text of incredible complexity and craziness, you know, but <laughs> partly because the iPhone or whatever um, is is uh, you know auto suggesting. You know, I send a friend of mine. I'll see if I can find this while we're talking. We're, we're, it's baseball trade deadline day today, as you may or may not know. I and know. I <laughs> yeah, well, don't worry. I sent somebody something about um, not knowing if somebody had pitched for the Mets and 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 my my phone decided uh pit held fire yes yeah. <laughs> and you know I mean, that you know the William Burroughs would have loved that right yeah. James James Joyce I didn't know that Warren Spahn had pit held fire the net the Mets I mean it's yeah 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 it's Ulipo a hundred percent yeah and um what 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 is interesting is that um, one of, you know, when we're talking about the rise of amount of reading that people are doing, and you, you talked about, oh, if a Saul Bellow novel came out, everyone saw that. There, there are, in other artistic mediums, there are, it's maybe not quite as centralized as, you know, when in the 60s, you know, the Beatles come out with an album. But if, you know, name a famous art, if Taylor Swift comes out with an album, pretty much everybody knows about that. If Quentin Tarantino comes out with a movie, pretty much everybody knows about that. Um, and, you know, you can go sort of down the line with the different mediums. Whereas the novel in particular feels like the, there are people who are dedicated to reading the novel. Um, however, like the broader public, if someone, if you imagine that there was some piece of art that came out that really captured the zeitgeist, um, and struck the public consciousness and you were to ask you know what medium 
do you think it would be? It, the, maybe the novel, besides like poetry, might be like the last on the list. Um, but it it doesn't feel like it has to be this way. With you know the the novel for the longest time has been like maybe like the most uh, capacious of, of artistic forms, where it can drag in plays, it can drag in poetry, images, etc. And now, if we just use the internet as our medium, it really can drag in every other medium where you can have, and, you know, different mediums are better at different things. If you just want to like show someone standing up, walking across a room, film is great for that. Um, You can go interior with like, you know, words, you know, it, it it doesn't feel like it has to be this way. Do you see where I'm coming from? Like, I absolutely do. No, I I am so buoyed by your optimism about this. I mean, you're, 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 you're pointing to my own, um, you know, premature pessimism about some of these. I mean, part of it isn't really, isn't it really uh, being able to articulate what you just did, having people say, look, the novel does exist. It exists in the forms of the people who are really devoted to an object that, as I wrote years ago, you can put in the back of the airplane seat in front of you. But it also exists in a much broader sense every, you know, all day long while you're carrying your phone or when you're looking into a screen. And there are some people, you know, we know them in other worlds as accumulators, influencers, what have you, there are some people who form those experiences. And if they choose to call those novels, which is what I hear you suggesting, you know, the opportunity is there to say to those who like the thing in the back of the seat in front of them and those who, um, you know, fire up TikTok on a given morning and look at, you know, 10 well-known friends and 100 strangers, that uh, that they're in a similar activity. But, um, you know, some of this, of course, has to do with the great American pro- project of stratifying markets and of deciding and, and, and you know, holding on to kind of even the narrowest of niches, monopolies and what have you. And, and there there is a certain economic incentive and cultural incentive to maintaining very strict bounds. But the people, the populace, the the audience, the world has given up those boundaries a long time ago. And is, I think you're right. Uh, is ready to have people say, this new form is that old form. You know, that that's... Yeah. Can you imagine? I have upstairs one, you know, in pretty bad shape, but one of the first um, publications of Finnegan's Wake, you know, in a, in a um, literary journal, it's falling apart at its seams. But you, whoever sat down and read the beginning of that thing had to have said to themselves, "Either this Irish man's completely nuts, which he, yeah. may, which he may have been, but also have said." Um, there's something about this I recognize, you know, it's whether it's from when I'm halfway falling asleep or when I hear babies talk or when I'm on a train and listening to everybody all at once. And, and that kind of change, I, I agree with you. There's, there's still a place for that, but um, right now, you know, let me loop back one more thing and, and say earlier, you asked what, what happened to the hypertext literature world. I know I can tell you what happened to my participation in it. I've yeah. from infamously kind of stepped away from it, not because I was tired of it, not because I thought it was a dead form, um, but because it had moved for the moment, maybe still is there toward games, um, you know, toward game spaces, toward, uh, in some sense, uh, kinetic literature, both of which interested me, the latter more than the former, um, but it wasn't an area that I wanted to write in. 
Um, and, you know, just to fill out the, the bio here, and, and in my late life, um, I've moved to the form that you said, there's only read less than novels, which is poetry. I've gone back to poetry. But, you know, again, if, you, if you're a poet in this time, um, you're pretty well aware that for not just the 20th century, but for the 19th and, you know, back to the 15th century before it, to the troubadours or whatever, poetry's been as open a form as anybody, any on earth. And yeah. it's taken all those forms. It's been dance. It's been music. It's It's been visual. It's been all these sorts of things. So, you know, in my own artistic interest, interest right now, what, what, what little I'm doing, I'm doing as a poet. But um, the there was an interim. There may still be an interim, but there is an electronic literature organization. They're very active. Uh, they have now uh, worldwide meetings every year. They draw many, many people and 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 people doing very interesting work that I think they are more and more willing to call if, literature, if not novel, poem, or what have you. Yeah. It's an electronic literature organization, and that's what they do. And and. I think you're you you are right to be optimistic that those things can boil up. The other aspect of this that I think we have to keep in mind is, uh, and that I, I do, you know, I no longer teach, so I don't have to stuff this down people's throats. But I, you know, I point out that a, a lot of what we think of as kind of contemporary traditional novels are, are polyvocal. They have um, voices in different languages um, or different characters veer into one another. They have stories that are uh, anachronistic or where time jumps are, uh, you know, illogical or what have you. And and they, they gather, even from the traditional literary establishment, a great deal of interest. People look at them and say, wow, this is a completely new, you know, Rachel Cusker, people like that. Uh, uh, they say, wow, look at this. We're in one mind the whole time that's moving all around. We're not sure where the story is going. Um, Tell me how that's different from hypertext or, in fact, from early 20th century uh, um, novels. Not very much, but in wonderfully significant ways that we've just become used to looking at a traditional novel and seeing it shoot off into. Uh, I, I just read a review of of a, of a lost 20th century author who I'm not going to blank on her name now, but um, who who wrote a novel that I'm going to chase down now. Um, that is told by uh, the decapitated head of a woman who that rolls around the story and tells it. Well, well you know, that was a traditional novel. Yeah. <laughs> but it is something that when you, when you, when I saw the review in, in the New York Review of Books, I said to myself, how, that's like a lot of game spaces. That's like, that's like what people told me they saw in warfare. That's the kind of, you yeah. know, this and then the midget, you know, the midget warrior had his head cut off, and then he, and then the head told the story. Yeah. That goes back to Gilgamesh, for God's sakes. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's um, and, and one of the things. So when, when you talked about um, modern novels, sort of incorporating or or having resonances with things that were achieved in hypertext um, fiction, what exactly? Um, you know, taking say like uh, the program that you used, uh, Story Space. What what is it um, that could be done um, within these hypertext um, works of fiction that simply could not be done in a physical paper book? I, I mean, the major one is that the, and this is something that's now second nature to when we go to an Amazon site or something that the the text itself it's tech it the the visible text 
was keeping track of the kinds of things you were looking at, thinking about, and what have you. And to the extent the author or authors offered affordances that said, well, if somebody looked over there in that garden and then decided to do this other thing, we would tell this other story, which is not unlike what we know about the history of ep oral epics or what have you, what Homer or, or the great epic epicists throughout history did. If the audience brought up a certain kind of thing, they went that direction. Now that's built in. We go on Amazon and it's trying to say, do you want more of those socks you bought the other day? Mm. Or do you want the Sumerian um, history? And when you think of how that's available to you as, as a sort of, it's just a utility on your phone and your world, then to have tools that allow you to bring those affordances in for readers and the ability yourself to, you know, I hesitate to call myself a coder, but back then, to a certain extent, I coded the multiplicities that were possible in the text, in afternoon or what have you. And, 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 and I often tell this, and I should mention it at this point. I, when I gave readings of afternoon, what I would do is post it, put it on a screen and have the audience call out very often things they wanted to click or wanted to follow and have either a, a so-called reader at the screen do it or I would do it. And I never, this is no exaggeration, I never read the same text twice. Never. Yeah. And yet, and yet I had planned those links, but when they interacted with themselves, when they collided, the combinatorial possibilities of those affordances, um, just burgeoned, you know? So when a chat GPS, uh, um, chat GPT. Yeah, GPT. I'm always doing it. And when a chat GPT, and I know when I do it, but um, when a chat GPT hallucinates, that's at some level, at some level, not unlike what one had planned in a hypertext novel or any interactive um, uh, setting or venue. You know, it, it, it's not a surprise. I mean, I, years and years ago, early on in my hypertext career, I, I, I was a visiting fellow at the Yale Artificial Intelligence Lab. And in those days, they were working on, on a kind of artificial intelligence that involved scripts and, and conceptual frames. The great Roger Shank, who passed away last year, uh, had this kind of um, model of AI that was the opposite of large language models, you know, what we're dealing with now. But where the convergence is, is... Um, large language models learn the multiplicity of the ways that we see the world and out of them pour conceptual objects, stories, instances um, that sometimes make great sense and sometimes are hallucinatory. You know, my favorite chat bot problem in recent time was the, the argument that somebody submitted to a court and filled with um, beautifully crafted legal references to precedents that that the bot had made up. <laughs> right. You know, that's great. That's you know the the judge was not happy, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, yeah. It it, it is. I mean, you, you mentioned James Joyce in there of of being sort of uh, you know intrigued by the possibilities of things like autocorrect and stuff like that, um, and also this sort of uh, hope of waiting on like a, a Don Quixote of uh, electronic literature. It, it, I mean, do you feel what well, one of the sort of um, 
you know, explanations that's been tossed out there for why uh, writers have have not gone in this direction uh, as much is that uh, these works are just uh, they're they're quite enjoyable to read, uh, but they're hard to write. Um, yeah, is that a fair explanation? Uh, it, it was an initially it was initially a fair explanation, but I mean more and more. I'm sorry the the you know just even if you wrote. Uh, or the web, which is now, you know, what, a third or fourth generation back technology, yeah. even if you vote for web sites, um, that's that's almost uh, utterly transparent and ubiquitous. Um, I, I, It will be interesting to see the, um, not collusion, not collaboration, but the convergence, let's say, of large language AI, mo- uh, large language AI models and ar- artistry um, and and just t- to see what develops there uh, in terms of a kind of you know call and response or a dialogic uh, culture, um, because that that's very very low threshold technology for an for an artist. But you, no, I mean you're right. If you somebody wants to write, you know, I'm not a game player as I said, but I've taught uh, I, I've taught for enough years that my students have taught me to appreciate what really good stuff there is out there. And they're very, very complexly plotted in many cases, textually, even brilliantly written poetically, you know, that sounds like so um, uh, um, prideful of me. And it, it, it's hypocritical. I mean, really good prose, good poetry, yeah. um, game, game systems. And, but for the everyday novelist or poet, it's not easy to write for a game system right now. Um, there are some pretty good, accessible um, editors and what have you. So, yeah, it, in the beginning, it was really a problem. I, I think now it is, this is, you know, kind of unformed and maybe um, unintelligent speculation. But I think largely it's another instance of uh, this stultifying stratification that we're living through right now and that where it seems better to say well you know I, i'm just not going there i'm not I, i'm not a part of your religion when in fact there's no escaping it it's ubiquitous yeah. it's i mean it's um so so you hide in your room and read your novels but look what's going on outside the door totally um and, and which reminds me i, I can't uh or i'm not going to speak about this publicly yet but if you have 60 seconds after this uh, this interview, yeah. I'd love to tell you about a project I'm working on right now in this space. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd be happy to hear. Um, and you, you, people, you know, sort of staying in the room, not going out, venturing out into this world. Um, have you have you at all tried to uh, evangelize about this um, besides, you know, publishing your own works? Um, yeah, I spent a life doing it. I mean, if you call what what teaching is, I mean, you know, I, I retired in January of, of of 2020 and retired into um, you know into the COVID experience um, and into a cancer diagnosis, into a lot of things. So my evangelizing these days is is on request. I know <laughs> we're doing, um, but sure, and and you know, and I'm happy to say that students of mine have have have. Uh, you know, I don't think it's all dead. I mean, I think students of mine and, and people I met over the years have gone on to to try to develop new systems and and, and new works and what have you. And and not just people I, I've sent off. There's a whole generation of 
of or multiple generations if they're not just a Gen Z, but there's a whatever before it is in hypertextuality uh, that is looking at. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Frude Heglund. Do you know who that is? Who has no. uh, who, who has a? Um, I'll, I'll send you after we've talked some Please. links to work. Um, but he has what's now become a large international project called the Future of Text, and and um, really looking at text from a very very sophisticated theoretical um, viewpoint and involving people from the original people who did emails and texts online at Park at Xerox Park years ago when there wasn't uh, a personal computer, let alone an internet, to people who were working contemporaneously. And, um, and, and, you know, it's a rich and thriving culture. There's a series of collections every year, the Future of Text collections that, that Frida um, publishes. Um, so it's the evangelizing's out there. Again, I think that you and I and 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 people who who we find congenial are still in the midst of this threatening, authoritarian, uh, stratified, uh, frightening, uh, um, splintered world, and we have to all evangelize just to survive. Um, yeah. But what's going to emerge isn't clear, is it? I mean, it's it's I, I, you know. We're both indulging in kind of um, saying it. It's all, all. It was all there in the early 20th century, if we could see it. But um, they could see. I mean, go back earlier than that. Go back to Blake, right? And 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 see that um, the machines. At that point, they were spewing steam. Now they're spewing vitriol. But the machines um, were at least destabilizing, if not threatening, our ability to tell our stories and sing our songs and what have you. And yeah. now we now we feel really pushed and and it isn't so clear that a Cervantes or a Tolstoy or whoever will emerge a Jane Austen to um, to pull us free. It it we may have to do it individually on uh, on our own and in little worlds and uh, you know that sounds very sixties of me, but I was a I was an old community organizer back in the day in 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 the nineteen sixties, and sort of still do believe that we make culture from face to face things. Yeah, I, I mean, you you you've touched on this uh, this topic of uh, misinformation and vitriol and things like that, uh, which again, maybe it's too optimistic but i feel like for for fiction writers this is a great opportunity because oh, you know every every story even if it's meant to be about something that actually happened is in essence a fabrication it does not exist in the wild you have to construct it and in the process of that construction you are leaving out the the vast majority of detail that actually occurred um <laughs> And how you leave out those details reflects subtle signs of bias, et cetera. And so in a certain sense, you could argue that, uh, you know, anyone telling any story is on some level misinforming you. Um, and, 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 you know, and we were, and Plato started, <laughs> Plato started that critique and said, you know, all of these things that are being printed and being told to you are, are misinformation. You have to just 
lock in directly. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And there is a splendid kind of misinformation that we have understood to be poetry and we've understood to be the novel and, and you know, uh, in the beginning, drama, right? I mean, you had people go up on the stage and say, now we're the gods. When you think about that, you know, it, that, 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 that makes Trump a piker. Trump's a piker anyway, but that really makes Trump a piker. These are people who went in and said, you know, no, I'm Zeus and you are Athena. And can you imagine the fright and the and 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 the excitement that that yeah. about? Totally. Oh my God. Yeah. I, and it's uh, you, you know mentioning about oh needing uh, you know some Quixote, Jane Austen, etc. Um, like I, I feel like we, we've got to have something there because we we are now you know talking about reading more than ever before. We are now inundated with so much information that it feels like our pattern matching brain. Anytime we get a new data point, our instinct is to just classify it somehow. And now we're awash in so much information that we almost don't have just the the bandwidth to give each new data point its appropriate due. And so the whole phenomenon of just reading the headline uh, becomes you know even more salient. Um, yeah. And if someone's even ambiguous in what they're saying, then they become, you know, suspect um, because you can't tell in an instant whether they're on your side or not. And so and we don't understand the world through data. We do understand it through stories. And so that there has to, you know, there, there just has to be something there where we are able to extract meaning um, from this deluge uh, or otherwise we're, I mean, we're kind of sunk. Um, so I feel like there must be, therefore, there will. <laughs> yeah, no, and and in your notion of of somebody um, using misinformation, malinformation to and and appropriating it and forming something with it, you remind me of this early hypertext writer by the name of Judy Malloy, who is not given near the credit she deserves, um, but who. Um, Back in the days of Muds and Moos, which probably your listeners will have the same problem with, multi-user dimensions came out of Dungeons and Dragons, were online textual environments, and they became Moos, Muds object-oriented, blah, blah. And, but, you know, they were they were imaginary spaces where people, originally D&D players, but then whole cultures of different kinds, would go and either meet in what we now understand as kind of uh, interest groups, or they would meet in the midst of stories they were creating. Judy would go on and go from room to room in various muds and moos and sit down and tell stories as a storyteller. And people would get mad as hell at her, including people who were storytellers. Well, no, this mud is about, you know, this mud is about uh, Frodo, or this mud is about, you know, being a contemporary woman. And she'd tell a story like some ancient witch. And that was pretty revolutionary move, you know, just this character would log in and tell a story and people, and that must have been not unlike the, not unlike the, um, you know, the first people watching a, a Greek plays or something. I, an old friend of mine, a high school teacher of mine who's deceased, a Jesuit priest, year after he taught us, went off to the Caroline Islands in the Pacific. To, I mean, went off to become a missionary, went, you know, now we would call him a primitivist or something. But he went off and, and taught on this remote island. And one of the things he did in the course of, of his priesthood was bring 2001 A Space Oddity and show it on a beach. 
This is God's fifth. Um, you know, I'm using a generator to power the the projector, so I doubt they could hear the soundtrack and show it on a beach. And the people, and this is, we're not talking about the 18th century, 19th century, we're talking about the 1970s. Um, these people gathered around in the South Pacific Island were A, terrified because in the middle of the darkness of a beach at night, there was this window open to a world. Yeah. But and terribly curious and ran down to the beach to look behind the screen and whatever you and see where it was all coming from. I often like, I like that too as a metaphor of whether it's Judy Malloy telling a story in a movie or somebody setting up a movie screen on a beach or an interactive kiosk in the middle of a supermarket or something, it, it does cause you to question your own reality, which, uh, you know, I, I can't be as optimistic about, but which misinformation on, on a, Facebook page or on, on a website should do also, but people instead lap, latch onto and run with the thing that most speaks to their prejudices and fears and what have you. I suppose, yeah. Um, that that is a really interesting example. That that reminds me of uh, you're familiar with the uh, the cargo cults. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And for people who are listening who don't know, it's, you know, when uh, certain islands in the, the South Pacific during World War II, uh, people would uh, come down and they would have the um, the little wands or whatever that you'd wave as an air traffic controller to bring the planes in and they would drop off supplies. And then after they left, uh, people living on those islands would would take sticks and wave them in the like praying for cargo to come. Um, and Coca-Cola bottles became a fetish. You know, they washed ashore, and people thought they were a fetish from the from the Great Plains, and and would, they'd set them up as this. And you know, we we could laugh at that, but that that's not unlike any of the fetishes, any of the ritual objects any of us have, the sticks or the. Oh yeah, yeah, not not at all. And and you know, I've I've been to some like Buddhist temples in like Southeast Asia where they have it was so it 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 was funny when i first saw it. it they have a bunch of uh in terms of the offerings around the the statues it's a bunch of like you know hershey's chocolate bars and uh yeah like coca-cola a, a cigarette a cigarette almost always in those um, yeah. ancestor altars there's a cigarette because very often the ancestors need a smoke in the other world yeah <laughs> Which, you know, put some way ahead of us. We left it up behind decades ago, but, but at least they get a smoke. Totally. Um, you, you talked about being at uh, at Yale, uh, your own teaching time. Uh, this one afternoon story came out. It was uh, written about quite positively in uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. Um, and these are all very like uh, sort of elite institutions um what, what was the vibe in those circles about this kind of literature was it looked down upon ever or sure. absolutely weariness utter weariness um yeah. I, it it was like oops the fox has been let in the chicken coop um you know because remember i started from a marginal position i started writing in a community college in michigan and loved it loved teaching there it wasn't like oh i can't wait to get to to Vassar or something. I mean, people would say to me, oh, you should be at Harvard. And I'd say, well, no, because I was teaching people of all different ages and what have you. But it happened that <clears throat> when Afternoon came out and it got reviewed by Bob Coover, by Robert Coover, the novelist, uh, or, or mentioned on the front page of the New York Times with a bunch of other things, a very, very visionary uh, woman, Barbara Page at Vassar, um, 
listened to a student of hers who pointed her to this article and pointed to hypertext and invited me to kind of come along here. And, and I came as a visitor and then I stayed and taught 27 years and retired from Vassar. But it wasn't all easy. I mean, there were colleagues who thought that I was giving away the store, you know, that that anybody could write something and that any story could go somewhere. And there were real, real conflicts out there in the world. And that, that was true also in, you know, I by the way, I make it clear, I was a visiting uh, fellow at Yale. I wasn't teaching there. But I, you know, I visited at Brown, I visited Yale and lectured a bunch of places. You're right. And um, there is a, on, on my study door, <laughs> there is a um, a newspaper from um, from back in those glory days uh, from the Taz in Berlin that says, Der Homer, Der Hypertext, the Homer of Hypertext. I put it up there kind of ironically, just, you know, to remind yourself, like a momentum mori. Yeah. You, you know, it was in Mar Marlon Brando, you know, I could have been somebody. Um, but um Sure, for all of the attention and excitement, there was a fear that we were leading the youth astray, that culture would break down, that divisions would, and they were right. They were right. That's what happened. Not because we did it. That's what we were. That's you, that's like yelling at somebody on a surfboard that you're causing the waves. You know, you're, the waves were there. We we got on them. And then you know the same people who had their who had their emails read to them like my my nine year old camper, um, in later years couldn't imagine that that their colleagues had ever had any fear about having a computer in a classroom or what have you. I mean, right now I don't know anybody. Well, you know, this is my first Zoom in in a year and a half or something but i retired right on the crust of that but everybody you no know, had to learn to teach this way had to learn you know people who would say to me what are you doing having keeping your computer on all through class and having you letting your students type into it while you're talking but and i'd say to them, well they're talking to we're talking up here and they're talking down there you know yeah. that's how, um in many ways their fears were correct but most fears are incorrect. You know, the, the fears of change are always incorrect, I think. Uh, there are changes that are that are malicious and authoritarian and bad, but the change that is proffered before somebody is not the maliciousness and not the authoritarian aspect, but things that people long for. And um, so, but much of the change, the technological change that we we've lived through, it makes like you know, conversation like this possible. You and I are hardly peers, but we're we're talking in the same culture, and to a certain extent, we understand each other in ways that might not have been true for two people our ages. You know, in 1950, let's say right. um, that that change that my colleagues feared uh, is a change for the good, and it made their teaching both harder to do. You know, in the last years of my life, it was harder to teach at this brilliant, wonderful place faster than I taught, but it was also much more rewarding because the idea of stratification of culture and what have you was under question. The, the you know, gender, uh, culture, racial um, um, identities, all of those sorts of things were under question. It made life more exciting, made it difficult, but made it more exciting. Yeah, I, and I wanted to ask you also, um, something that we, we did not talk about earlier, but I wanted to bring up is the distribution um, of these different pieces of electronic literature. I understand that um, 
I believe Afternoon a Story in particular came out in like 1987, I, I think. Yep. Um, yep. And it was distributed, I think, on like floppy disks. Absolutely. It wasn't, wasn't officially published by Eastgate until 1990, but yes, floppies. Um, we, the, the very first meeting, you know, of the uh, ACM, which is the big computing uh, that in the world of computer manufacturers, education, what have you, the big annual meeting of, of computer types in 1987, uh, which was held at the University of North Carolina. And that one of the co writers of Story Space, John Smith, was one of the organizers of. And they set up this meeting and they thought they would have maybe 75 people at it because um, they they knew there were that many researchers in the world working on hypertext. Um, and 350 people showed up, many of them unregistered people sleeping on the doorways and stuff. But at any rate, at that meeting, Jay Bolter and I set up a card table and handed out the floppies of afternoon, this demo disc. At the same time, Apple was showing to a huge audience in the auditorium, HyperCard, a wonderful hypertext system that sort of disappeared, but the people can find instances of online. Um, and, and at any rate, to a certain extent, Afternoon became a samizdat, not unlike uh, the Russia back in, in, in the original Russian repression, as opposed to the current Russian repression, the way that people distributed things is mimeographed um, novels or poems or what have you, Afternoon sort of made its way around. I got a phone call from a woman who later became a pretty well-known hypertext theorist, Jane Yellowlees Douglas. Uh, I got a telephone call from this woman who said, hi, I'm Jane Douglas and I'm a doctoral student at NYU. And I said, how'd you get my number? She said, oh, I found it from something. Uh, she said, I'm writing a dissertation on Afternoon. I said, what? It's not even published. How are you writing a dissertation on it? She had it. I went to the second or third hypertext meeting and and uh, gave a talk and it was well received and and there were a line of people standing there to coming up to shake hands or ask questions or whatever. And um, there was this fellow in a tweed suit who later became the translator of the of, of afternoon, the first Italian translation of it, the first translation of any kind, Walter Benini. He was standing there with his colleague uh, and and they said um, we want to talk to you about story space in afternoon. And I said, well, how do you know about it? They said, well, we have it here. And they showed yeah. me the, the floppies, um, and they'd been working with it somehow, you know. So yeah, it was that was exciting. It was exciting to be in a world like that uh, where where floppies were a way of passing things around. I don't think, and and you know that those were those were at least the little. Um, Macintosh floppies, the 3.5s. I wrote and other people wrote some things that were on floppy floppies, you know, that, yeah. that if you said, if I said to students floppy disks, they pretty well know about the Macintosh things because they were not on like CDs, dying beasts, but, but real floppies people have never seen. Well, oh, my, my question though is it seems like if, you know, one of the advantages of sort of the internet and something that they, they drive a lot in Silicon Valley is, Hey, we're trying to reduce friction, yeah. um, and so um, I, I haven't. I tried see, seeing if I could find this, but I, I didn't find like a, a URL I could go to, a website I could go to where I could just read online uh, in my browser. Afternoon a story. I, I, I may have missed that, but um, it feels like one of the uh, sort of 
core things that people doing this kind of literature, I think should be doing is making sure that you have a website where people can view the entirety of your work. Um, and I agree, a, a I mobile agree. <laughs> I agree utterly. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't want to go much farther with this, but um, author publisher relationships throughout time have always been fraught. Yes. And, and, I, and I talked about the marginalization that happens in big time culture, but uh, Eastgate was, um, a, you know, wonderfully supportive and what have you. But there was great resistance from Eastgate to put any of the work online. Why? I, I It's not for me to answer, but um, I expect it was to try to make what little, little kind of uh, profit there was left in, in having exclusivity and what have you. Um, as for afternoon, I think you can find it online. I will try to, uh, after we've talked, send you where. I know you can find it in other languages online. Yeah. Um, um, other work of mine uh, with, I should say, the agreement of Eastgate has been, uh, uh, the, they've allowed it to go online, Twilight the second, the sequel to Afternoon is Twilight, I guess. But Twilight um, does exist online now. Um, I agree with you. From the first, it was a matter of uh, contention and negotiation. I th think I understand why a very, very small publisher with limited resources could have brought themselves to believe that it didn't make sense. You know, they didn't under talk about influencers or, you know, yeah. I mean, they didn't understand, but, you know, they weren't alone in there. Very big corporations didn't understand that uh, the way to get mass acceptance is to give things away. You know, I mean, the TikTok algorithm works that way, right? <laughs> it it just it just makes sure you get that you get what's popular, and 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 that sometimes you get things that aren't yet popular, so they can build popularity. Um, you're right, and they should be there now historically. And there's being and there's great work being done by Dini Grigger, uh, who's um, uh, I'm I'm momentarily blanking on the at, at the University of Western Washington, who's um, Institute I'm blanking the name of, but they have been uh, not only uh, doing meetings in which they have writers uh, walk through our hypertext back from the day and 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 talk about them, but they're doing uh, an archive of them, physical archive. They have machines that will allow them to uh, allow the works to play there, but they also are putting uh, many, many things on the web. Um, one of the great pleasures of the COVID year for me was that the Electronic Literature Organization and Dini did a, a, an anniversary, a 30th anniversary of uh, afternoon um, as as part of their annual meeting. And uh, I, I got to pick a half dozen or no, a dozen readers, critics, friends, and what have you who read through Afternoon Online and Dini put up a really wonderful site that sort of commemorates and, and, and introduces what Afternoon did. Uh, all of which, though, is to say, um, even though you're right, by and large, the Electronic Literature Organization is doing its damnedest to make archives of all of the earliest electronic works available. There are still many fewer things available than should be, but anybody wishing 
to start exploring them can look at the CDs, if you can still play them, or look at the online repositories of the Electronic Literature Organization. And also, I think, uh, Danny Greger's uh, Institute at Washington. But well, why do you need a publisher for this kind of stuff? Well, you did that. Oh, you, no, you, I mean, uh, sure, we gave the floppies around and what have you, but you didn't get notice, didn't get uh, reviews, didn't get, uh, you know, people would say, people would say, uh, okay, this is all very well. This is some new literature, but, you know, who's selling it? Where do you get it? How do we adopt it? Um, yeah. it yeah, you just, um, again, it was, the wave was there and, and, um, and many of us were riding it, but when it came time, people said, "Oh no, that's not how. That's not the ocean we're in." Um, they, you know, they were wrong. But you know, isn't it still? There's exclusivity is still, even with Silicon Valley's opening up and what have you. Exclusivity is still. You try to niche things. You try to be first. You try to be influencers. You try to be whatever. Um, it's just you needed it for a certain legitimacy. I see. Yeah. Well, I feel like that is something that is definitely breaking down because, yeah. you know, who these publishers, especially with something like electronic literature, where you can just throw up a website, like, why do you need some corporation stepping in and, yeah. you know, fiddling around with things? And Yeah, but libraries wouldn't acquire them. Teachers wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't assign them. Uh, and, 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 venues, journals, and newspapers and whatever you wouldn't review them, and they were in that position. That's less so now. At, that's the thing, is at the time, but if millions of people are checking this out, then they're going to have to come to you and say, you know, you, I think it's just way better to not have to pass through an institution where, I mean, I've heard of, I've heard of your work, I've I don't know much about Eastgate, um, and from my where I'm sitting, I think you're a lot bigger than this this publishing company. Um, so I mean, boy, I, I would uh, I don't know do you, if you could do it over again. Do you think that you would go through a publishing company? I mean, the answer has to be yes. For the same reasons I said, I wouldn't have gotten yeah. noticed. Wouldn't have gotten noticed. It wouldn't have gotten read. It wouldn't have, um, right. You know, gatekeepers were real, even yeah. little, even little ones, even little ones. And, you know, I've been, I, I, as a print novelist, I, you know, I, I, um, I print, you know, my novels and my poems are, are, are published by small presses. And with the one exception, I have a Kindle novel that anybody can find, um, you know, it, my COVID novel is there in Kindle. It cost a dollar forty nine, um, dollar forty three. Why did I do that? That's my address. Um, at any rate, um, the, I go through small presses for those things for the same reason. Even though I could self publish everything, you 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 get a different kind of notice, a different kind of audience, and whatever. It's not vast or anything, but if you're trying to reach people. All that said, I can hear the anguish in your voice, and I agree with it utterly. It should be there. It should be online. the The Norton edition, uh, the Norton anthology, which was you know a great gatekeeper, was God bless them, the first people Norton anthology of postmodern literature um, published my afternoon and uh, Jane Douglas's uh, hypertext as part of the Norton anthology, um, but they did 
put on a restriction in their then JavaScript version online that somebody could only look at 15 of the 500 and some odd nodes or pages uh, at a time unless they had purchased the uh, uh, the anthology. You know, they're just trying to figure out how it all worked. And, um, you know, the trade-off there for me, you know, what I've done, uh, would I do that again? I guess, yeah, I would, because the Norton Anthology, when you when you sudden, when things suddenly showed up in Norton Anthology in those days, that was like for the English teaching establishment, like God's imprimatur. You know? yeah. And and um, and at that point, uh, I I didn't quite need the readership or the or the repute, but I felt an obligation to a, a, a field that was growing to to say yes to that offer. So well, why not why not just create your own publishing company? Just yeah. and hear me out. Just incorporate a company that's you know uh, Westgate Publishing, <laughs> and you you, you throw up a website and you claim to have put out all these different books. And then you say, lo and behold, ladies and gentlemen, uh, afternoon, a story has been published through Westgate publishing. And then all of these institutions who haven't heard of Westgate, but now go to the website and see, Oh, that has all these books that we haven't heard of, but Hey, it looks like a legitimate company to me. Great. They've passed the test of our gatekeepers. Let's, let's put this out there. Now, the short answer is that it, um, I wasn't that smart, or it wasn't that possible then. But yeah, I mean that 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 is to a certain extent. Um, by God, I don't want to go down this byway with you, but that is to a certain extent what's going on in strict academic publishing, not artistic publishing, open source basically uh, publishing of of scholarly work is now thriving, and it should have. There should be an artistic. Uh, uh, the, um, you know, correlate, correlate of it. Back then, it wasn't really possible. I mean, honestly, the Westgate that would have been sniffed through Eastgate, you know, Eastgate had to establish, you know, it's not like this was a powerful publisher either. Mark, right. Bernstein, Mark Bernstein, who is a really heroic figure in this whole field, had to fight to get acceptance and these kinds of things, and the and the teachers, you know, I, I I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the the whole first generation of hypertext writers and whatever were people who were involved in marginal cultural enterprises, even in big institutions. Some of Stuart Moulthrop and Nancy Kaplan were at Yale and Cornell, respectively, but were teaching in remedial English programs or in women's studies or in uh, Africana studies or, you know, I was I was teaching in a community college. We we were not the main line of academic or literary uh, worlds. And so to get a kind of uh, to get a kind of uh, repute, to get a kind of, um, uh, you know, seal of approval, we had to have some reputable publishing venue and people you know, I, in the beginning the, the when the few libraries started to collect eastgate titles we were all thrilled we were amazed stanford yeah. stanford and a few other places collected um, um eastgate titles yeah I, but i you know what i i i think that has just changed because you know, like I, I think if you had a hundred thousand followers on Instagram for you know your poetry Instagram, let's say, I yep. think that is 
maybe 10,000 times more valuable than getting published in even a super prestigious uh, poetry journal. Like even something like Poetry Magazine, I think 100,000, you know, and and like these gatekeepers are so unneeded where there are examples, even if you don't like the the guy or, you know, whatever he's putting out, Joe Rogan is a guy who started his own podcast outside of his house. And eventually it got so huge that the institutions had to come to him and say, listen, just for a piece of this, we'll give you, you know, X number of hundred million dollars. And <laughs> I, I think that, you know, maybe, you know, don't, you don't have to shoot for that kind of money. Um, but to limit the reach artificially of this work by saying people can only check out 15% online, that there's not a just a website where anyone can go on to and easily find it and it gets to the top of the search engine results. That is that is limiting the reach of, of the art. Yeah, I, it, it is. But, you know, you 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 have to remember that we can't leapfrog history and that these things came up at a certain point. Yes. And, and Joe Rogan couldn't have done that back then. That's the, true. Somebody on Instagram with 200,000 followers, uh, just it, there, there wasn't that uh, a possibility. What is interesting now is that now that it is possible and any anybody can do it, is how much of the contemporary cultural landscape is following in much the same footsteps. There's not a, a, a Norton or an Eastgate or a Simon Schuster controlling it, but there are uh, influencers themselves or, you know, um, TikTok stars become themselves sort of their own worlds and yeah. sell themselves to places like this. They, you know, capitalist culture has its hungers. Um, but yes, you're right. It, it, today, today you can't put a corner on the market. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I taught enough years that way, way back when I was, well, I always was, but you know, when I was paying heed to copyright restrictions and stuff to people, I'd say, okay, I'll put this movie on reserve and people would say, no, no, I'll download it. And you'd look at the class and say, really? They say, yeah, I'll download it. I'll have it tomorrow. Um, or I have, or I have it now. Um, we could tell, as 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 teachers and as as cultural actors, that that culture had fallen. But uh, there was still, you know, the recording industry of America was still shutting down colleges and running in with actual agents to, you know, to look at servers to see if songs were listed there. That, you know, now you pay Spotify or whoever you know, X number of dollars a year and you have everything. So on the other hand, there's the side of it. I do know somebody, you know, I do know a number of singers, some people you'd you'd be surprised at, some pretty famous singers who can tell you that their royalties last year were like $18 or $27 or something. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that so, all I, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, well, we, we're we're almost at an hour here. We're past an hour here, actually. We're past an hour. It's been, but it's been a great pleasure. <laughs> yes, um, Michael Joyce, uh, your your website, MichaelJoyce.com. Do I have that correct? Okay. Um, yeah, all, all one word, MichaelJoyce.com. I mean, dot com. Yeah. Yes. Um, pleasure, 
talking to you. Pleasure uh, talking with you. I'm got a second to... after this call. Love yeah, I want to. I want to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks once again, and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you to Michael Joyce, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>